Hello everyone and welcome back to Just Drinks the Podcast. I'm here today with good friend Georgia Groves and my sister, Brianna Riley. That's How right. are we everyone? Yeah, good. How are you guys doing? Very good. I got myself a nice cup of joe this morning. So today we are drinking Knock Knock Coffee. So my friend um, is CEO of Knock Knock Coffee. He owns a coffee shop in Spring Hill and he also specializes in cold drip coffee. Coffee, if I can talk. I'm only up to my second cup of coffee and I can't even talk properly. <laughs> That's going to make for a great podcast. <laughs> It'll go well. Uh, speaking of the podcast, we're actually focusing in on you today, Gia. Oh, all right. Let's do it. How exciting. Yeah, we want to dive deep into what you do as a professional. Okay. So, so your title, I'm going to say this wrong. Pediatric Occupational Therapist. Beautiful. Oh, I nailed it. There well we go. done. Woo. Good job. Can you tell us what that actually means? I can tell you what that means. But firstly, I would like to see what you think occupational therapy oh, is. Oh. Some big words there. I know. Um, Bri, I'll let you lead this one. <laughs> okay, well, working with children. Yes. I guess that's, that's the pediatric side of it. Yes. yes. Um, to me, when I think occupational therapy, I think kind of helping people get back to normal functions and mm-hmm. being able to do everyday routines yeah yeah beautiful kind of physio but like isn't it the more nitty-gritty Oof. kind of stuff instead of the big exercise movements like writing your name and yeah look you're correct but i it's very different to physio at the same time yeah what about you josh well i'm gonna jump over is it more like i'm like the mental side on like how kids develop Yes, a lot of that, definitely. Crushed it. Very good. <laughs> no, you both did so well. So to understand the answer of occupational therapy, you need to understand what occupation means. So everyone will say to me, oh, do you help people get back to work? So we think as occupation as what we do for a job. But it's actually a lot more. So occupation describes everything that we do in our day-to-day life. From um, taking care of yourself, leisure activities, work, all the things that you need to do and want to do to live a rich and meaningful life. So that's where sort of the mental health comes into it because we work with the client to get them back to the things that are really meaningful to them. And so that really helps develop your, you know, your mental well-being. Mm. Um, so OTs can work with people for lots of different reasons who have injury, disability, or even older adults and to help them to get back to their daily occupations. We do a lot of self-care occupations. So helping people brush their teeth, brush their hair. Um, my role in pediatrics is to work with children and their families who have been touched by some type of adversity. I do a lot of disability work. Um, and we help the child to develop the skills that they need. So a lot of the kids that I see, they have developmental delays because of disability or because of injury. Um, and I help them to develop those cognitive, social, physical skills. It's also important to note that I also do a lot of work with the families and support with the families. It's not me telling the families, do this, do that. 
It's working with them to see what's going to fit into their lifestyle and providing the family support. So, you know, I'll tell parents, you know, I'm, I'm here to support your child, but I'm also here to support you as well. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I love it. It's really, really cool. it's really rewarding. Mm. So has there been anything in particular that you guys have wanted me to talk about OT? Okay, I think there's a lot of different areas you can discuss with it, even from just what you've said. Mm. I kind of want to lean into, first of all, I am interested in the kids. So how often do you actually see these kids? Uh, so the frequency is usually uh, fortnightly, but I do have some monthly and some weekly kids. Right, so they're still in school and like... Yeah, yep. so I them. will go out to schools. I do clinic work. I also go out to people's homes. It's really cool to see them at school because I can do sort of observations and see what they're like in the classroom. It's very common for parents to say, my kid it presents like this at home. And then the teacher will say, well, they're very different at school. And yeah. so different environments can really impact on the kid's performance. 100%. Yeah. So um, when we get into the process on how to break down like an individual child, what's the steps from start to, to finish mm -hmm. roughly? Yeah. So we do, we have a lot of standardized assessment tools. Do you guys know what standardized assessment tools are? Aren't they like... Not surveys, but like you ask a bunch of questions. Very similar. Right. So standardized is means that we have to complete that assessment in the same way for every child. Okay. And that gives us um, a score. Okay. And so the assessment tool, I've got like a functional capacity assessment tool, which looks at lots of different areas of the child's life. It might look at their self-care their leisure their social and so because it's standardized i score it up based on same aged peers and it will give me a number but i have to administer that assessment in the same way for every child yeah so you have like a basis mm -hmm. and a principle and you just work around that for everyone uh yes yes i'll get more into it so standardized assessments are really important mm -hmm. but then we i also do informal observations yeah and so i can then tailor that so you get the qualitative the and the quantitative exactly so yes. that's a bit yeah okay yes and so funding schemes like the ndis national disability insurance scheme like me to use standardized assessments right. so then we get a really clear quantitative number yeah. that tells me where the child is functioning but then for my own work, you know, we talk about doing an assessment tool really informally. So we're going to standardize that. So I would do like a fine motor assessment, but if it's a little bit different, I'm not going to exactly score it up and take those scores as gospels, as gospel, but it's going to give me the data and the information that I need from that assessment to look at the child's pincer grasp, to look at yeah. their in-hand manipulation, to look at all their fine motor skills that will really help me to inform my assessment plan. Yeah. To lean back to what you said a while ago, you mentioned how you have to work with the families as yep. well. Yeah. When it comes to doing these assessments and mm. figuring out kind of what's going on with the kid, how do you tell the parents? How do you bring that to their mm. attention? If there is something yeah. challenging, it's tricky. Yeah. It's very tricky. Um, I mean... Most assessment tools that I do, 
generally the child can highlight in one area or, or two or three areas that there is some kind of delay. You don't exactly tell the parent straight off, you know, oh, your child has a delay. Mm. It's important to note that OTs do not diagnose. Right. I cannot say to a parent, your child has autism, your child has this, your child has that. Yeah. I would show the parent the results and give them the tools that they need to then make that next step themselves. So I would sort of say, you know, I've got this assessment, we've got this result. Um, it might be helpful for you to bring this to your pediatrician at your next appointment. Yeah. If you would like me to write like a letter of my observation that might help the pediatrician inform a diagnosis. It might be, okay, let's work with this child for a few months and then we'll re-administer that assessment and see, okay, have we worked on fine motor skills and handwriting skills and have they then improved? Yeah. I don't, for, for me, a child having a diagnosis, yes, it helps, but it's also not... You know, I don't really mind. I see a lot of kids where they actually don't have any diagnosis. And maybe the school teacher has said to the parents, oh, you know, maybe just go see an OT to work on building that fine motor strength, getting their handwriting, because maybe they're a little bit behind in class. Yeah. And then we work on letter formation. We work on their pencil grip. Just We even work on their... Some kids can have really bad gross motor, which is like your core strength or your trunk control and so they're like slumped in their desk and then that's going to make it really tricky for them to keep up in class because they're not they don't have the correct environmental support or the the support themselves so then we modify the environment to then help them yeah yeah wow that's really interesting it is i love it um with that so that's kind of the parent side of it when it comes to siblings especially i feel like ones that are older Mm -hmm. they kind of need to understand Mm -hmm. what's going on with my little brother or sister like Mm -hmm. why are they thinking differently to me where are they going yeah do you yeah work not work with but do you have any interaction with the siblings definitely i will have a lot of interaction with the siblings mostly for kids with autism and building those social skills yeah um, and so for me, I do a lot of structured play with, with kids with autism. And so what I mean by structured play is I am facilitating the play rules. So maybe I'll give the other, the child, you know, one kind of thing at a time to do. So the child has a really clear understanding of the rules and expectations around what the child needs to do in that game. Right. So for example, a game of like connect four. If the child doesn't understand the purpose of that game, what I will do is I will give the child one coin at a time and and say the child's name and their turn. And then it's George's turn, child's turn. And so that's a very structured play. And so then to relate that back to siblings, I will often say to parents, because they'll bring in the the siblings very, very often. And the, the parents are sort of like, oh, you know, sibling, you know, come away, come sit down, you know, leave. And while it's good to have that one-on-one session, if our goals are social skills, I'll say to the parents, do you want me to facilitate that play between yeah. the siblings? Do you want me to show the sibling 
how to interact and how to play with yeah. maybe the child that does have a disability. So I don't do a lot of, I think your question is like, how do I explain it yeah. to the sibling? Yeah. I don't do a lot of explaining it, but I will show the sibling how to interact and how to get that meaningful play and engagement with their sibling that might have a delay or yeah. a disability or something like that. Wow. Speaking on that, the language barrier, mm-hmm. how do you go, for instance, talking to a parent and explaining what you've just explained to us, mm. how do you find, like, when you first started yeah. to now just changing the changing language that language. you use, how you speak to them, empathy and compassion? Yeah, yeah, so that's... I think also some parents probably don't, respond to that yeah um yeah except mm-hmm. yeah that's the delays thing. that their child might yes. how do you how do you yes. um deal with say a parent or a situation where they don't want to agree or listen yeah it, it's tricky you sort of need to feed i've become quite good at feeding off the parents vibes yeah right. so sometimes a parent will be very you know, open, you know, please tell us, please tell us if you see any red flags. I am okay to say to the parent, you know, look, I have seen a few red flags. It might be beneficial to go see a pediatrician. But I will only say that if I know that the parent is going to be mentally stably, mentally stable enough to hear that. Yeah. yeah. If they come to me and they say, please tell me if you see any red flags. I will tell them that. Yeah. If they come and they're quite nervous, you've really got to like pick up on their social cues mm-hmm. and pick up on their feelings. And if they're quite nervous and worried about it, you know, I might just validate their feelings and just say, look, there might be a few things here that we can definitely work on in OT. Yeah. We can definitely work on in speech therapy and psychology. Um, and then we'll sort of go from there. Yeah. But in terms of, like, with the assessment tools, I like to sort of link it back to real-life stuff. So I do, like, a sensory profile. And I'll say to parents, everyone, you and me, even every adult, has sensory preferences. So you'll even notice, do you like loud noise? Do you not like loud noise? Do you like deep pressure touch or do you not like soft touch? Mm. Me, I really hate soft touch. So someone's, if someone was to rub like a feather over my arm, I would hate that. Um, so everyone's got different preferences. Wow. Everyone does. Mm. And you'll notice that when you, so kids and adults use their sensory preferences to help them to regulate their emotions. So say, for example, you're sitting at the computer all day for a long time. You need to get up and go for a walk, stretch your legs, or go get a cold drink or a hot drink. Right. Same as kids, but they do it in a very inappropriate way because yeah. they're children. Yeah. We, don't, we can't expect them to, to regulate themselves in an appropriate way. It's any child, disability or not. And so the child's going to want to yell out in class. The child's going to want to um, get up, walk around. Especially kids that do have ASD, it's very challenging for them to regulate themselves and to have that bit of impulse control to go, okay, I need to sit down, I need to remain seated. Yeah. Um, So we set those, we give the child 
that space to regulate themselves or they're going to have a big meltdown yeah. if, if they are too dysregulated. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess that comes back to your question of explaining that to the parents and sort of how I explained it just to you guys then. Yeah. Relating it back to everyone's very similar. Yeah. And it's just my job to help the child just to learn in whatever environment and space that they are in at that yeah. moment. Every child is so different and it just baffles me how the education system and this is a this this could go on for a long time but like our education system is so everyone has to do the exact same thing yeah Yeah. it's so you know children they do not all learn the same we do not all learn the same no No, i think the the structure of schooling is it's been the same thing for years it really has to change yeah but that's another thing that is Um, (laughs) yeah no i am i'm curious to know though like uh Personally, I think. Personally, I think that like how important um, like a childhood is for development. You go one or two ways. Um, so, how important to you do you think like a childhood is for a child? It's like, very. Do you think like yeah. how much does that shape a character of a person? Do you mean so we could talk about childhood shapes your personality definitely. Um, but then we could also talk about, you know, childhood shapes, your motor skills, childhood yeah, shapes, your, true. your cognitive skills. Do you know what I mean? When I say cognitive skills, like your yeah. thinking processes, like working memory, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Just that's very basic. Um, so in t- like in terms of your fine motor skills. So say for example, my pencil grasp is absolutely shocking. I have so if you look at a, we call it a tripod grasp and that's how you would think that anyone would write sort of like your two, um, you like a crocodile snap. Did you guys ever do the crocodile snap? Yeah, yeah, we had three, that. We, three um, grab or something like that. Yeah, yes. we had the uh, triangle pencil grip. And yep. I do not write like that no. at all. No. So I grip it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So my thumb crosses over a lot. And that has to do with my fine motor skills, which I would have developed as a child. Yeah. You get to a certain age where you cannot change a child's pencil grasp. No. You can. Like, it's, it's painful. Not, it's very, very painful. <laughs> yeah. And I'll always say to parents, like, you know, parents will come to me and if their child's over the age of seven, it's very challenging. They've got that habit of their pencil grasp and that's how they write. And I'll just say to parents... You know, look, I have a pencil grasp that isn't perfect, but I can still write. If your child can still write and can still do all the things, you know, that they need to do at school and it's not causing them pain or fatigue, then it's okay. Mm. It might not look beautiful, but it's okay. But children that are a little bit... But even at, at... over seven, we can definitely still work on their fine motor skills. It's just a little bit more difficult. It is. Yeah. 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 Um, but even children under the age of seven, to get them to handwrite, mm-hmm. we do a lot of fine motor play using tongs, um, Play-Doh, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And that really shapes their development. Mm-hmm. So to make things more engaging mm-hmm. for a child, obviously you've got to include fun, yep. incorporate fun into yep. the learning mm-hmm. process. How do you do that? Play-based. 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 So instead of having a... We do both, but we're all about play-based therapy. So teaching social skills, teaching fine motor skills. I guess that is the main part of my job, being able to 
justify, okay, why am I doing connect four with this child mm. to a parent or to um, someone looking in? Yeah, well, they're paying money. So. <laughs> exactly. And they are paying a lot of money. Yeah. Mm. They are looking in and they're going, why is this girl just doing connect four with my child? Yeah. Fair enough question. Yeah. And I say to all um, my new grads and, you know, the staff that I supervise, for every game that you choose, for every activity that you choose, you need to be able to justify that to the parent about what skills you are working on. Yeah. So if I'm doing Connect Four with a child, you're doing turn-taking skills, right? Right. You're also doing pincer grasp. Oh. Yeah, you're doing attention, the ability to follow instructions, the ability to um, follow rules in a yeah. game. Um, Would so there's... pattern recognition be... Part of it? So, yes. Okay. So I'm just talking about literally your turn, my turn. Wow. But then you can get into your executive functioning, working memory. Um, Not so much pattern recognition, but the ability to hold the information, the instruction and connect for Um, your planning, judgment, all that kind of stuff. And that's all your executive functioning. Who would have thought that's all in Connect 4? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. But that's my job. Yeah. That's, you know, and for you looking on the outside, you're like, okay, you're just playing a game of Connect 4. But in my mind... You're breaking down a full process. Yes. And that is what is like bread and butter OT. Mm. We break down activities. So I teach like kids to make, uh, to tie their shoelaces. And so what I need to do is I need to do it myself and think about what other steps I need to do to tie my own shoelaces because then I need to break down the steps one at a time yeah. to be able to teach a child or someone else the to do through that. the tunnel and whatnot. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's a pretty interesting gig. It's very interesting. Um, so how – obviously the first five years is very important. For, for a child, yes? Yes, it is, definitely. What would you say your range of age group, what's the most? Zero to 28. Zero to 28? Yeah. Wow, that's a that is, range. That is very broad. It's a larger range because of NDIS, because yep. a lot more people have access to funding now. Awesome. Um, so NDIS has created this space for people to access a lot more funding because therapies are very expensive. Yeah, they are. Um, we charge, this is at my clinic, I, I don't make the prices, but they're very similar across private pediatric clinics. For per hour, we charge $190. Wow. So it's expensive for parents. Mm. And these I, kids need it. They That's... really do. I wouldn't be able to afford that for a child no. if I um, if I didn't have like access to funding. Mm. So NDIS is created, but people didn't have that many years ago. So my 28 year old client, they didn't have access to the funding and support when they were two, three, four, five. Oh, that's shocking. So it's, yeah. So how do, what are the, what are the steps in place to getting the funding and getting the right funding for the right job? Yeah. So for you to explain to a parent who probably, one doesn't have the most amount of money at the moment mm-hmm. to do that. Mm-hmm. How would you, what advice would you give them to going out and yeah. getting the right help that they need? Yeah. Depending on the age of the child and depending on their diagnosis. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it depends on a lot of things. If a child is under seven, they can access early intervention funding by NDIS. Okay. Which does that 
I guess does that yeah. make sense? It's, that it's that. yeah. <laughs> okay, so they don't have to have a diagnosis. Yeah. If they're over seven, you have to have a diagnosis of a disability to oh. access NDIS. And mm-hmm. so then I need to do a report. The pediatrician needs to do a report. Say the speech therapist, the physiotherapist, the psychologist. Yeah. Depending on like if a child has more speech and language delays, yeah. I'd probably recommend like a speech therapist because that's where they're. I guess, and I, I hate saying this, but NDIS are very deficit-based. Right. So my reports need to be really, cannot do this, cannot do that. And it's yeah. sad because at uni, I was taught strengths-based approach. Like, yeah. the child can do this, the child can do that. Yeah. But I really have to change my language. I guess s- they need the hard facts. To they do. To... Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that I always, always remind parents of, you know, you're going to read this report just remember it's to get you funding. Yeah. You know, I, this is what NDIS looks for. Yeah. Um, if they don't have a diagnosis that is recognized by NDIS, and I won't get into that, right. but some diagnoses are not recognized by NDIS, then we can look at getting like an EPC plan from the doctor, which is like your... Um, you can go to the doctor and get like a five session referral for a specialist right? Yes. or you can get a mental health care plan yep. and that's a 10 sessions over the year for a child. Yep. So there is different options, um, but NDIS is the most that we see. So I've got NDIS, EPC and then private yeah. paying clients. Wow. So there's a lot of options out there. There's a lot. There is. There could be more, but there of is. Of course. Yeah. But it's just... <laughs> No, NDIS is, is really, really good. So they give you a plan of like annually how much money that they give you for you to use towards speech, um, OT, yeah. physio, equipment, lots of other stuff to, yeah. to, I guess, help that child with their disability, a child or adult, I should say, with their disability. Um, but accessing NDIS can be a long process and can cost a lot of money. Like our reports are hundreds of dollars. Yeah. And for parents, they've got to pay that yeah. to get a specialist to write a report um, f- to access NDIS. Yeah. So it's a lot of money. It is. Mm-hmm. It is. I think that's a good place to kind of wrap things up with, mm-hmm. finding mm-hmm. out how we can get help and... yeah. Wow, that was really interesting. That was good. Yeah, I think the important thing is, one, everyone feels safe and comfortable when they come. Definitely. You know? And I think it, I think it's going to help them eventually a lot. Yeah. So I think, uh, yeah, getting the information out there is very important. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. So, thank you very much for talking about it, Georgia. Well, I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thanks for chatting about it. Because OT is a... Um, a profession that I don't think many people know a lot about. Right. But it's really nice to be able to let you guys know what my job entails and also like I know so many people that they are like I know this child that has this or I know that child that has this you know where can they get support so I guess the first point of call would be to ask your GP go to your GP ask your GP and the GP can recommend OT speech physio yeah, whatever's needed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, there we go. Well, let's knock it off with one last knock-knock. Yeah. Knock-knock. Cheers, guys. Good work, everyone. We'll see you next week. See you later.